According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, and tonight we're beginning a new paragraph, verses 10 through 19. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 19. This paragraph concludes with, My God will supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And uh, I know, I forget who it was, but somebody told me way back when we started the Philippians series, they were looking forward to that verse. And I said, well, that's kind of at the end of the book. We'll get there. It's not going to come up too quickly, but we're we're almost there now. So uh, whoever that was, as we were talking, I don't remember now who we were talking, but um, we're almost there. So thank you for waiting. Uh, we are looking, though, at this uh, marvelous pa- paragraph that speaks about the uh, the desire to assist. Let me just read the first few verses, then we'll open in prayer. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last, finally, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And so there's a lot to unpack just with that one verse and what we want to do in the Lord, what we would love to do if we had the opportunity. And until the Lord provides the opportunity, then what is our expectation? What does He hold us accountable for? If we don't have the opportunity, how then uh, are we uh, are we responsible for such things? And so we'll deal with that. Not that I speak from want, nor have, uh, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And so we'll be learning this very same secret ourselves as uh, individuals, as families, and as uh, a local assembly. How does an assembly get along with humble means and how does an assembly get along in uh, prosperity? There's a secret to both. And uh, this paragraph is going to give us the, the doctrine that we need to make this application. All right, so before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father for His faithfulness yet again to uh, guide us in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing that it is that we have to assemble together. I thank You, Father, for freedom. Our nation is a land of freedom still, even uh, in the decline that we observe, Father, there remains a freedom, there remains grace. The Word of God is still free to be taught, and so we're delighted to assemble tonight. We thank you for your grace provision that makes it possible. Father, the doors are open, the lights are on, the bills are paid, and here we are. We thank you for your grace provision, Father. Open the eyes of our understanding now and teach us from your truth. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so before we do get to the Philippians material, though, there might be some questions out there, and the microphone's ready to go, so we can take our lead-off question. I don't believe there are any email questions that came in, so um, if, if there was one, I forgot already. So do we have any uh, questions from the group here tonight? Or not? Going once, going twice. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Yeah, there you go. Zero point space, that's right. No questions. All right. Well then, we'll skip that. Thank you, Chris. 
Um, Philippians 4. Remember, uh, we've basically taken this final chapter and broken it down into three parts. And uh, verses 1 through 9, chapter 4 begins with practical applications that rapture reflection should prompt in the life of every church member. And so uh, remember chapter 3 ended with the doctrine of the rapture and the uh, exhortation there, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait. So if we are eagerly waiting for the rapture of the church, if we are mindful of our heavenly citizenship, then we should have practical applications here and now. In other words, we're not going to be, uh, we're not going to be uh, keeping the feuds going between believers. There's no time for that. Yodi and Seneca, you just got to stop that. All right, and uh, where we should be done with that in uh, in those things, and uh, and then we should be about rejoicing, and we should be about prayer, and all of the applications, the uh, the different imperatives. I think nine of them that are found there in those first uh, nine verses. Then uh, we get to the second, the middle part of the chapter, verses ten through nineteen, and really it's a final item that Paul mentions prior to closing the epistle, and this is the grace financial provision that he appreciated from the Philippian saints. And so Epaphroditus was the courier, but the Philippian saints were the, the senders. It was the church that sent the funds. And, uh, and grace is grace as it's given, and grace is grace as it's received. And uh, every time grace is expressed, it gives the opportunity for believers to express gratitude. And we have that. When we think about thankfulness, it's, it's a little bit awkward in English. The way we have thankful is a different, is a different root from grace, whereas gratitude comes from the same the same root as grace. And so I think that's a, a better term, or at least it helps us to remember the, remember the terms. So we'll deal with that here starting tonight. Finally then, we have one of the shortest uh, doxologies of any Pauline epistle, verses 20 through 23, just four verses uh, that close the epistle in a doxology, and uh, we'll deal with that. Because there's, there's content there as well. We won't just blow through it like it's not important. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, so we will glean from the... Uh, the doxology as well. But for tonight though, we'll start with uh, verse 10 here in the the grace-giving gratitude that's being expressed. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. And there really is an emphasis on the at last, and we want to recognize it for what it is. It's not as insulting as it could be, and I don't believe it's insulting at all. But I do believe that it does express an important reality for what we deal with as, as uh, creatures of time, that we, uh, we can't speed up the clock and we can't slow down the clock and we can't roll back the clock, that when we're waiting for something to happen, uh, effectively all we can do is wait, all right? We can wait, we can pray, we can watch, we can ask the Lord for His faithfulness. But uh, it always cracks me up when I hear my children say, oh, I can't wait for whatever, whatever. And I just stop. They're probably sick of me saying this all the time. But every time I hear a child say, oh, I can't wait, I'll say, really? Well, what's your alternative then? I mean, what are you going to do otherwise if you can't wait? You got to either invent a time machine or uh, somehow you got to, I kind of think you're going to wait. The rest of us have to wait and that's that's when it's going to happen. But the whole concept though, when Paul says, finally, you have revived your concern for me. It is. Uh, it does communicate a very real truth for how we operate in the in the church age. When there are things we want to do, but the door's not yet open, and so we can't open the door that Jesus doesn't open. And so we might want him to open the door. We might have been asking for five years now that he would open that door, uh, but we're still waiting. Okay, and that becomes uh, the blessing there too 
of, uh, of the faith rest walk. So we're going to deal with that. And then we're going to ask the question about this opportunity. When you lack the opportunity then, what, uh, what's your plan B or what do you do if, uh, if the opportunity is not there? So what we start though in terms of rejoicing is with a mega rejoicing. It is I rejoice in the Lord greatly. The Greek word is megalos. And uh, just like you might expect, it means in Greek what it means in English. If something is mega, that means it's big, okay? It's mega. And this is mega rejoicing in the Lord. Mega rejoicing in the Lord. Now at last, their concern has revived. Their concern has revived. We actually have vocabulary here that speaks of revival, that speaks of uh, nursing back to health. It speaks of even a plant that you thought was a dead plant, but then all of a sudden it, it sprouts again. You're like, wow, well, how did it sprout again? It hasn't sprouted in, in ages. And now it's sprouting again? We thought it was a dead plant. Well, it's not. It just was dormant and uh, now it's sprouting again. And so that's, uh, that's the Lord's good pleasure to bring about as well. This is actually our 14th and final reference to rejoicing in this epistle. You might remember when we introduced the book that we said Philippians is the book of rejoicing. And, uh, and there are 14 uses between the verb Cairo and the noun kara. There are 14 uses to be found in uh, the book of Philippians. This is the 14th and final one, and it's the biggest of them all, because this is the one that's connected with the adverb megalos, that he's rejoicing greatly. And uh, the, the biggest thing, you can't walk out of here thinking that the reason Paul is rejoicing more than ever before is because now it's about the money, okay? Because let me tell you, it's not about the money. And, uh, and that's, that becomes important. In fact, it's anything but. And he's going to make that very clear. It's not the money. It's not the profit that he gets. Uh, when you glance down to verse 17, you're going to see this. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That he is thankful for the Philippians' sake that they are back into the mode that they had been in previously whereby they could profit abundantly through their grace provision. And it was something they had done repeatedly. Even in Macedonia they had sent more than one gift. Verse 15 talks about that. Uh, that uh, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And that we're going to discuss that too. That becomes a test also. If you're the last one doing it, you can get very um, discouraging, and it can get very uh, you know a believer can start to grumble to say, why am I still bothering doing this when nobody else bothers to do this, or why is why am I the only one doing this? And you get the Elijah syndrome that I alone am left, right? And then the next thing you know, you're you're in a cave, and the still small voice is is rebuking you. Because uh, you're not the last one left, but at the moment yours is the open door opportunity while uh, somebody else is waiting for their door to open. So we'll deal with that also. This is uh, really, there's so much doctrine in this whole paragraph, uh, top to bottom, every verse has, uh, has a lot in there, including I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that uh, we want to understand the context for that. So the 14th and final reference to rejoicing in this epistle is mega rejoicing. As it says here in this verse, ekarin de enkurio megalos, that rejoicing in the Lord. Remember, that's not a throwaway expression either. Rejoicing in the Lord. Now, that there's a difference between rejoicing in yourself and rejoicing in the Lord and that 
mindful of the will of God, mindful of the leadership of Jesus Christ, mindful of, of His role in, in this ministry then, can, uh, can we rejoice in the Lord? All right. And so let's uh, take a few minutes tonight just to remind ourselves of what we've already studied related to this. Again, the verb is Cairo, C-H-A-I-R-O, 5463, and there's 74 uses of that in the New Testament. The Bible's got a lot to say about rejoicing. And then Kara, sometimes girls get that as a name. If you have you know, girl named Kara, C-H-A-R-A, means joy. And it's the noun that goes with Cairo for rejoicing. 59 more uses there. So between 74 and 59, whatever that adds up to, 133, we have different uh, applications of rejoicing through the New Testament. And out of those, uh, what did I say that was? 133? Out of those, 14 of them are right here in Philippians. It's a very concentrated uh, number that are to be found right here. So back up a couple pages to chapter 1 and let's refresh what we were dealing with in this. Because these are all the venues that we as a church can rejoice in, just like Paul could, just like the Philippians could in, uh, in these different ways. So Philippians 1, 4, uh, verse 3 says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. One of the best things you can do to increase your joy is to get plugged into a prayer meeting. Get plugged into answers to prayer. Get plugged into what other ministries are doing so you can celebrate their fruit. You can celebrate their success as, uh, as he's doing here in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Because honestly, I don't care how joyous your life is, uh, you're just one person, okay? And you might have tons of joy in your life, and I hope you do, but you don't have more than a hundred of us put together or this whole flock combined or multiple flocks combined or the whole body of Christ worldwide. There are so many things to rejoice over day after day as we, as we see these things that uh, joining together in prayer allows us to multiply the thanksgiving. And so this becomes a, uh, a blessing here as well. So always offering prayer with joy. And you might think of this too, since we're Studying in the book of Hebrews, we're studying the Levitical offerings and the, the priestly function of this. Remember that oftentimes when offerings get brought, there's other things that get added on top. And so it might be a, a wine offering, a drink offering that gets poured out even as the animal is offered, see. Or maybe there's oil that's mixed in if it's a grain offering, or there might be other ingredients that are added. There's uh, different spices that get added to the, to the loaves of the, of the table of showbread, for example. So just you might think of this in those terms as well when he says always offering prayer with joy. And so if your prayer is an offering, go ahead and mix some joy in there with it. Okay? It's like, you know, throwing some wine in on the on the, the burnt offering while you're at it, see. And this is uh this is what it comes about. So uh no different than what we had with um uh make your request known with thanksgiving. You throw that into your to your prayers as well. So that's verse four here of uh chapter one. Also verse eighteen of chapter one, when he's talking about the conflict. And uh, you know. Uh, you've got conflict in any ministry. But here's an interesting thing where people were trying to cause him trouble. That uh, there was a whole team that was uh, engaged in gospel ministry trying to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. Right? And uh, they're mentioned there in verse uh, 17 
uh, it says in verse 15 that they're preaching Christ from envy and strife. That's a terrible motivation. I mean, you know, well, why are you in ministry? Well, because I'm envious of what Paul's doing in his ministry, you know. Um, and so, you know, if you have the right motivation, then you're preaching the gospel out of love, and that's great. But with the wrong motivation, goodness, it says selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. How in the world is them preaching the gospel going to bring Paul distress? Well, who knows? But that's their thought anyway. So he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. At the end of the day, Paul was just laughing about it. He thought, man, that's hilarious. Even the crowd that's, that's, that's pursuing gospel ministry with wrong motivations, well, they don't understand the power of that gospel they're preaching. Because <laughs> the Word of God is powerful. The gospel is powerful. It's powerful into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So maybe their motivation is terrible. But hey, it's still the gospel. And if folks are getting saved, then praise God. And uh, it, it, clearly it's not causing Paul any kind of distress in his imprisonment. He's not... Uh, and, and if really it is out of strife and out of envy, then I guess they had it in their minds. The only thing I can conclude is they had it in their mindset that it was a competition of some sort. That if they got more people saved while Paul was in, uh, in jail, then they won a prize or something. You know, they, got, they got credit for leading more people to Christ than Paul did because you know, he was in jail. But uh, anyway, be that as it may. Whichever way it goes, though, Paul says, hey, I'm just happy the gospel's being preached. So in this I rejoice. Finally, verse 25 of chapter 1. He says, uh, convinced of this, I know. This is when he's going back and forth and he's not sure if he's going to be released, if he's going to be, he's going to die in prison or if he's going to be released. But he does finally say, you know what? I'm convinced. I'm going to, I'm going to remain. I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. And that, uh, that his continuing with them was going to increase their joy. There was a benefit to that, that dynamic and that face-to-face ministry. So I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. And sometimes the testing you're going through isn't even for you anyway. It's for somebody else. And so they're watching you go through it and it's going to improve their joy in uh, what they watch you go through different uh, things happen there. All right. Then, uh, as we said, there's a total of 14 rejoicing instances in uh, this book, and we're reaching the final one right here tonight. So that's four in chapter one. We have five in chapter two, starting here in verse two. Make my joy complete. Wow. Wow. There's something there, right? I mean, what's an incomplete joy? (laughs) Wait a minute, you mean there's more to it than just being happy about something? And uh, so we talk about this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, all those things mentioned there in verse 1 are all true. And they're all assumed to be true for the sake of argument. These are all what we call first-class condition ifs. They're all true. And so since they're true, given that all this is true make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Remember we, we tried to use a Clint Eastwood dirty hairy voice with this, right? Like make my day, you know, make my day, make my joy complete. 
by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That uh, the only thing that's, that's uh, maybe taking an edge off of his joy, the only thing that's maybe diminishing his joy is the fact that there's Yodi and Seneki and there's maybe other issues, uh, conflicts in the, in the flock where until that like-mindedness is manifest, there's going to be just a little, you know, um, a little something that, that takes the edge off that joy. And so he wants him to, to get rid of it. Just uh, remove those things, clear that all out of the way so that nothing hinders the fullness of the joy that we should be having. Further down in the chapter in verse 17, he says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, is what we're talking about with the wine offerings or the drink offerings, the idea of pouring it out. And he's using that as a metaphor that if he dies in prison, what's that going to be like? Well, it's going to be like pouring out the cup on their sacrifice of their faith. Because the Philippians are going to keep on in the Word of God. The Philippians are going to keep on serving. And uh, hey, Paul says, I'm a part of that. So even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, the liturgical priestly service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And this is a privilege too to understand that rejoicing is very communicable, that we should be sharing it. We should be shouting it from the rooftops because everything we have to rejoice in the Lord is worthy to boast about, worthy to, to praise God for what He's doing. And uh, this morning even we, had a, we touched on this in, in Proverbs 16 related to the fact that if you're living the Word of God and you're, you're walking in this kind of truth, you should be sharing that. You should be communicating that. That uh, your very words become words of sweetness to edify other believers. And uh, so if you're rejoicing, why not share it? What, are you hoarding that to yourself? What, what does that accomplish? Okay, Because there's brothers and sisters that need it. They need that kind of joy. They need that kind of encouragement. So please uh, share it. And then it gets reciprocal in verse 18 because it says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So the things I have to rejoice in, I'm going to share with you. And the things you have to rejoice in, you're going to share with me. And this just feeds it. We feed each other in this. It becomes mutually uh, reciprocal. It becomes reinforcing. And it's, uh, I tell you, it's a powerful thing. Otherwise, what happens? You just sit there alone and, and grumble. <laughs> you sit there and grumble. And, and if you're not truly sharing the joy, then uh, I think then you're vulnerable to envy and jealousy and, and the sour grapes of, you know, why do they... You know, why do they get that? You know, why do they have such a, a happy marriage? Or why do they have such success in, uh, in whatever? And then they start to grumble over things. And they think, well, they don't deserve that. They shouldn't be entitled to that. I should have rewards. I should have more rewards than that. And the whole thing gets plunged into the, the mental attitude of jealousy and coveting and all the rest. So those uses there. Down to verses 28 and 29. And uh, the expectation of some of these travel plans and uh, sending Epaphroditus back. He actually fairly recently wasn't even able to travel because he was sick to the point of death. But now that he's uh, been restored to health, Paul uh, was happy to, uh, to send him back to Philippi, probably carrying the scroll. He was probably the courier carrying the very scroll that we're reading today as the book of Philippians. But I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, 
you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. And this too is, I think it's a thrill in the body of Christ when you get to host uh, heroes from around the world. When Fassel and Carrie John are going to be coming here in February, for example, what a joy. All right. And, uh, and then when, if and when, they're able to bring their adopted son with them on a trip, man, what a double joy. And how fun is that going to be? Keep that in your prayer also related to that. But, um, but receive him then in the Lord. Don't throw that expression away. You know, you can receive somebody or you can receive somebody in the Lord. And uh, don't, don't think that's the same hospitality however you do it. If it's in the Lord, that means that you're occupied with Christ. You have Jesus Christ at the forefront of your thinking. And so you're receiving him not just be out of politeness or out of, you know, niceness or whatever. Uh, you're, you're receiving him in the Lord. You're, you're actually, I mean, dealing with him as if it's Jesus Christ himself. How, how would you roll the red carpet out if it was Jesus staying in your home tonight? See, does that make a difference in, in your hospitality? If, uh, you know, or do you just kind of treat him like some chump and say, you know, <laughs> make yourself at home and you're leaving tomorrow, right? You know, you, you want to get rid of him as quick as you can. Yeah, you're busy stashing the good stuff and you serve him the cheap stuff. And, uh, you know, hoping he doesn't find the, the real high dollar items in the wine cellar. Well, I mean, what are you doing? Are you hosting him as if it's the Lord himself? And, uh, and what is he worthy of? What is he, I mean, for Jesus, he's worthy of everything. And so I think it makes a big difference when you have those phrases like in the Lord. There's a lot of them in this book and I'm glad we're paying attention to them. I think they get glossed over and, uh, and minimized as if they're not even there. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. For he, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. You know, some of these guys, some of these pastors we're praying for in Cameroon and these other places, I think, wow. You know, and when, what are they doing? You know, they send me pictures of, they're, they're putting bricks on the back of their house to build a little shelter and a little thing uh, uh, for the next time the bullets start flying, you know, to try to keep his wife and kids safe. And you're thinking, here we are all fat, dumb, and happy in Austin, Texas, and then just, we have it so easy in, uh, in this land of wealth and plenty and, and everything else. These are heroes, and so uh, hold them in high regard. Chapter 3, there's only one, and it's in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. So anytime he repeats himself, it is a gracious repetition. It is a sanctified redundancy. It reinforces the truth of what we need to pound through our thick skulls, uh, you know, in uh, probably more often than we actually do rejoice and beware. I like the way that there, there's a tandem there with the rejoicing in verse 1 and the beware in verse 2. Remember that? Beware of the dogs. All right. Had some fun with that too. And then chapter 4, where we are tonight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved actually referring to his brothers in Philippi, referring to his fellow believers as his joy. Remember, we are joy and crown kindred. That's their acronym there. Joy and crown kindred. 
And he's referring to those believers that they are his joy. Not that they give him joy, but they are his joy. He takes joy in them, themselves, their persons, their their ministry, their growth. So stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Twice in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He just keeps pounding this home, doesn't he? Rejoice in the Lord always. So you can't rejoice in your problems, but you can rejoice in the Lord. And that becomes a big difference too. You know, you're not rejoicing at hospitalization, but you're rejoicing that the Lord is faithful through the hospitalization. You're thankful for the Lord's faithfulness in all of our testing circumstances. Again, I will say rejoice. And then tonight in verse 10, the mega rejoicing. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Rejoice in the Lord greatly. So there's degrees. There's, uh, there's little rejoicing and big rejoicing and mega rejoicing. There's degrees of rejoicing. And uh, this is his biggest rejoicing of all. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. It's not the money. It's the, uh, it's the faithfulness. It's the time. It's the fact that not only was he waiting that whole time, they were waiting that whole time. That they didn't grow uh, weary of waiting. That they didn't give up on the whole thing as would be common uh, in, in many human ways. When you want to do something and the door is closed and so you just give up and you throw up your hand and say, oh well, fine. The door is closed, forget about it. And uh, no, you just keep waiting, you keep waiting, and then however long it takes when that door opens up again they were ready to go through. They, I mean, they were ready, just boom, as soon as that door was open again, there they were. And so the, the real greatness, the, the megalo, the uh, megalos rejoicing on this is the fact despite the time away when the door opened up again they were right on it they were ready to go picking up where where they left off and uh and didn't miss a beat i think uh we'll discuss that too when it relates to the time frame involved and how long had it been uh since uh they'd been able to support paul and what is it that causes you to think the time is going longer than it really is what is it that causes uh, you know, a child to think that waiting three weeks is like waiting 100 years? Okay? What is it that causes, um, when you lose your divine viewpoint perspective and you think that a test is lasting forever and ever and ever when really it hasn't been that long, but it just seems that long. What is it about our perceptions whereby uh, we just get subjective about things and we we fail to put them on the eternal scale where God ultimately has them. So all of that has to come into consideration related to the at last statement that we have here. All right. And so that's what we t- talk about under point B. The now at last, the now at last expresses a thrill. It is a thrill for finite temporal creatures living in suspense waiting for a day that might never come. Because this day didn't have to come. The Lord didn't have to open this door. It might have been that Paul would have lived out the rest of his life and never yet, never again received any grace uh, support from the believers of Philippi. But he wanted it to, and they wanted it to. So they kept looking, they kept waiting, they kept asking. And then when it finally comes, yes, at last, now at last. And so this is uh, it's a thrill, it's a joy. And I think um, it's unfortunate that tone of voice doesn't often come out uh, in uh, ancient Greek manuscripts. <laughs> a 
A lot of times tone of voice doesn't come out in text messages either, whereby you get a note from your wife and you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. It really would be helpful if you could tell the tone of voice on some of those text messages. You know, is she mad at me? Is this, is, is this wait, what's this about? This now at last, okay? Because it could be very dismissive. It could be very insulting. Finally, you guys bothered to get around to sending some money. You know, it could be if you take it that way. And I think it lends itself to that if more years have gone by, if, he, if this is actually a Roman imprisonment at the end of Acts 28, because then uh, he's actually passed through Philippi a couple of times in the meantime. And it almost seems like he passed through town on that third missionary journey coming and going as, 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 as he came through there in, in Macedonia. And it's like they stiffed him. It's like, you know, they didn't even support him when he was there with them, see. And that becomes a little bit more insulting as well. As part of what we study, I think this is one of the lines of evidence that actually points to an earlier dating of the epistle, that actually points to a, a, an Ephesian uh, authorship and, and uh, during the time that Paul spent there in, uh, in other words, in Acts 19 and Acts 20 instead of Acts 28. And that takes the book of Philippians and it moves it much more early. It takes Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, moves all of those much more early in, in between First and Second Corinthians, even before the book of Romans was written. And that uh, I think has a lot uh, commendable in that, in that view that, uh, that you, can, you can track uh, different word usages, you can attract, uh, track different concepts as they're presented, as it were. All right. So now at last, expressing a thrill for finite temporal creatures. And the very similar expression, the uh, at last, now, finally, is, uh, is used in Romans chapter 1, where again, Paul's been wanting to do something, but he thought this day would never come. And even when he's writing the letter, the day still hasn't come. He wants to go to Rome. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Rome is the Gentile world capital, and he's never been there. So in Romans 1 he talks about it. He talks about how it's at the forefront of his thinking. It's a big desire on his, uh, on his part. You might remember this from our Roman series. Um, in verse 7 he says, To all who are beloved in God, of God in Rome, called as saints. There's a body of believers there, born again believers that are in a, in a called body. They, are, they identify as a lampstand. They identify as a flock. And yet they have not been planted with apostolic authority. So how did they get there, right? You know, well, I suspect there were some of those uh, folks that were in Jerusalem on Pentecost and we're told that there were some there from Rome and that they returned back to Rome after the day of Pentecost. So it says, call to saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. I mean, imagine. This is still real new in, in terms of Christianity. And uh, how far has the gospel traveled at this point? And you start to realize, okay, we've, we've got churches planted here and here and here. And Paul's had his travels. Peter's had his travels. The different apostles have gone where they've gone. But the idea that, wow, you know what, there's a church in Rome. Does that get, do you get excited about that? They would, certainly they would. You know, to me it's exciting that uh, Pastor Dan Ingram is in Washington, D.C., or at least a Virginia suburb. 
that, that uh, the National Capital Bible Church is right there in our nation's capital. I, that thrills me. I, I love the fact that there's doctrinal teaching there from a solid Bible teacher. And, uh, you know, I don't know how big the flock is. I don't care. It doesn't, doesn't matter. The fact is there's a lampstand there. And if there's hungry people there, you know, that happen to be politicians or government people, you know, especially now they got time on their hands. If, uh, you know, they've been furloughed with a shutdown, go get some Bible teaching because there's doctrine available in our nation's capital. I think that's powerful. And so they learn that there's uh, a church in Rome and the whole world that faith is going to be proclaimed. Verse 9 says, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you. He's constantly praying for these guys. Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last. And this is the same idiom we have, this at last idiom that's found in, uh, in Philippians 4.10. Now at last, finally, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. That's been his heart. That's been his desire. And when at the time that he's sending this letter, it still hasn't been realized. He's sending this letter from Corinth, and uh, I think he's on the verge of making a big mistake by sailing east out of Corinth and trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. But that's, uh, that's another story. He says, uh, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, and then that you may be established. The the term there, established, being grounded, having a foundation set. Remember, the foundation for the church is built upon the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And Paul realizes this is a flock of believers here. They've not been apostolically grounded yet. And he wants to be there to plant that foundation, see? Which, uh, you know, makes sense to us. We don't have any hang-ups related to that, but uh, it kind of blows a hole in that whole Roman Catholic tradition that says that Peter was the first pope and that he founded the church. And that that clearly can't be the case. If that was true, then... um, Verse 11 wouldn't say what it says about them needing to be established. All right. So this is what now at last speaks of. And I think we should, we should uh, embrace this. This is our, our thrill as well. This is our privilege for the things we're praying for. You know, until he opens the door, then we just keep praying. We, we keep uh, imploring him like the, the widow and the uh, unrighteous judge. We just keep nagging him. If uh, nothing else, he'll maybe just answer our prayer to make us go away. Uh, that's you know always a strategy. And Jesus says that's the, that's the right example for how to pray. If you're not that pesky in your prayers, you're not praying enough. And uh, so we want to pray like that. And then when the answer comes, we thank him and say, at last, thank you, Father. And we keep on going with, with what we're doing in our prayer life. I think it's a thrill. Because God's known all along. He's known from the foundation of the world when the answer is going to come. It's not no surprise to him. He's not up there wondering, is this ever going to happen or when is this going to happen? He knows he's going to make it happen in the perfection of his, of his unfolding plan. And that's his delight. Uh, we're the ones that are the finite, impatient creatures that don't know the, the end from the beginning, and we have to wait. So when, when we finally see something manifest in time, it's yes, at last. It becomes a thrill. It becomes a thrill. It's not a condescending or a mocking expression. It is a thrill. All right. 
And then he says concern. Our term for concern is a thinking term. In fact, so much of Philippians is all getting tied together right here. Because we had the 14th and final rejoicing term. Here we have the 9th and 10th and the, the final uses of, uh, of uh, phreneo, the thinking vocabulary that we've had all throughout this book. Your concern. You have revived your concern for me. All right. The verb for concern, the verb for thinking is phroneo, P-H-R-O-N-E-O. And as we've discussed this uh, all these times already from 172225315319422 and now finally twice in 410 we have the final uses of thinking the idea of thinking about somebody concerned for them uh, being uh, you know saturating their circumstances in prayer they're on your mind this is the idea that you're mindful if uh, if they never cross your mind how concerned are you <laughs> you know uh, you know, you, you say, yeah, I'll be praying for you, I'll be praying for you, and then you they completely are lost from your mind, they're lost from your thinking. They never cross your mind after that. Uh, I'm guessing you weren't really all that concerned then, were you? If, uh, if they don't cross your mind. The whole point of concern is that you are mindful of these people and, and wh- where they are, what they're doing, what their circumstances are. You're thinking about them. Thoughts and prayers. And to me, it's special. This is our thrill of the body of Christ. The skeptics don't understand it. The God-haters mock it. You know, there's, there, there typically tends to be, you know, some national thing happens and believers start offering thoughts and prayers. And then what do the unbelievers do? They scorn and they mock and they ridicule like, big deal, what are your thoughts and prayers? And they, they mock and say, oh, here come the thoughts and prayers crowd again. You know, and they don't even have a clue what, uh, what a blessing it is to be in the Holy of Holies in our, with our great high priest and to make mention of them in our prayers, to be mindful of them in our prayers. Because if, if we've got our, one another on our minds, that means Jesus has us on His mind. And that's, uh, that's a grace provision there as well. All right. Remember Franeo, number 5426. Franeo or frain is, uh, is the noun for that. That speaks of the mind. Uh, that's where we get our frenetic verbs. That's where we get our schizophrenic terminology. Uh, somebody that has a divided mind because their frame has been schizoed, right? That means that uh, that they're thinking one way and then they're thinking another way and they're trying to keep both thoughts going at the same time and they're of a divided mind, see? And um, we used to use terms like schizophrenic. They've erased that. But um, nevertheless, it's useful to illustrate what we're talking about. But to be mindful, to be consciously thinking about and considering a person's circumstances and giving them to the Father for His mindfulness. That's what this is centered on. Again, we can run through these just as a refresher for the book. In Philippians 1.7, remember, it's translated as feeling and that just drives me up the wall like fingernails on a chalkboard, you know? Just scrape the nails on the chalkboard whenever people want to start talking about their feelings. It's not about feelings. It's not about the emotionalist sentimentality of the Christian walk. It's about how do we think and how do we engage our priesthood and our prayer life on behalf of one another. So he says, it is only right for me to think this way about you all, to phroneo about you all, because I have you in my cardia, in the core of my being, 
The problem is people see the word heart and they think Valentine's. <laughs> they think emotions. They think, oh, you're in my heart. I love you. And so they think it's all about feelings. Okay? It's not about feelings. Phreneo is a thinking word and cardia is the core of your soul. It is that inner core of your being, that dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It is the very core of who you are. And so I, I have you, uh, I have treasured you in my innermost being since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers of grace with me. This is, uh, this is mature. This is, a, this is a prayer ministry here. This is a, a priesthood that functions together through the slings and arrows of, of combat. And uh, I tell you, you do. You build an esprit de corps with your fellow combat veterans when, uh, when you go through war like that. And this is how he, this is how he considered the uh, Philippians as his combat veteran uh, comrades in arms. So, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. Make my joy complete, which we read earlier in the joy application. But how do you do this? By thinking the same way. By thinking the same way. We want to think the same. And that's not uh, slavery to the pastor. That's not a cult. That's not where you're, uh, you know, you have to think the way the pastor thinks. And if you don't think the way the pastor thinks, then, uh, you know, he throws you out or there's some kind of a conflict in the church. No, the pastor's included in this as well. All of us. Our thinking is being molded into Christ's thinking. Where to think the same way is to think the, the thinking of Christ. Which comes out here as well when it says, have this thinking in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's the attitude from verse 5. But be the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, thinking one thing, uh, one thing intent on one purpose. So there's two uses of thinking in verse 2 and then of course verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus. That's not an emotional state, that's a mindset. That's a thinking process. Think this way. Think this way and then, then it spells out in the verses that follow. It's the thinking of humility. That's what it's all about. Chapter 3 and verse 15, more thinking. You know, when, when Scripture commands you to think a certain way, <laughs> you're accountable. And God, God holds all of us accountable for how we think. And if we're not thinking the way we're supposed to be thinking, then He disciplines us because we've had the teaching. It all comes down to what we choose to think on. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this thinking. Have this thinking. The recognition that we're pressing on we're forgetting what lies behind. We're reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's the attitude of perfection. That God's the one doing the work. Alright? And so as many as are perfect have this attitude, have this thinking. And if in anything you have different thinking, God will reveal that also to you. See, God is marvelous at spotlighting the things that have to be adjusted. God's not up there. Um, God's not a pluralist, first of all. And he's not up there sanctioning or tolerating your rebellion or my rebellion, say. And, um, you know, if, if there's a certain way we're supposed to think, and then there's a different way that you're thinking, well, different is wrong, okay? Different is sin. It falls short of the glory of God. 
If, uh, if you're thinking something contrary to what God's thinking, then that's not an alternative lifestyle or an alternative just as good as, as the other. It's not a reasonable facsimile. It's different. It's wrong. And it has to stop. And so we discussed this. I've uh, even had a little fun, you know, because there's, there's homo thinking and hetero thinking. And uh, this is one of the verses where homo is good and hetero is bad, that the hetero thinking, if you're thinking something different, is uh, what comes for divine discipline. But if you're homo thinking, if you're thinking the same that God thinks, then that's good. Okay? And so, yeah, we can have some fun with that. But it's, uh, the whole point is we want to learn the terminology so that it sticks, that we recognize uh, what these things are all about. So think this way. And if you think a different way, God will reveal that also to you. Why does He spotlight those things? Why does He mention those things? Why does His Word, why does the Word of God just shine the light on that and say, wow, okay, that's, uh, that's not fun to look at, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you got to deal with it. God didn't want to look at it either, okay? He judged that on His Son. So let's, let's deal with it and, and, uh, and get past that. So we're, we are responsible for our thinking. And even the enemies that we have to deal with. Same chapter. Verse 18 tells us, Many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And the saddest thing about it is is not uh, the fact that they are enemies, but they're enemies and where they are and how they're infiltrating the church and how they're passing themselves off as if they belong here. And uh, the fact is their end is destruction whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who think, that is, set their minds on earthly things. Their mindset is entirely earthly. And uh, it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be heavenly. So here you are, learning the Word of God, studying to show yourself approved, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and now here's your your brother here in the flock, or the so-called brother here in this flock, and he's not heavenly minded. He's earthly minded. And he, he's got a different God than you do. His God's his belly, his appetite, his, his uh, proclivities, as it were. There's different kinds of appetites, we understand. And, uh, and they're glorying in their shame. Like, wow. They're, not only are they uh, you know, living by a different standard, they're celebrating it. They're marching in parades and demanding that you celebrate with them. And, and Acting like they're one of us. Wait a minute. So let's uh, let's be mindful of this. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the darker we see our world become, uh, the more eager I tell you I'm waiting. The more eager I become. And uh, you watch another news report and you say, "Oh Lord," <laughs> okay. And then and then you realize, "Oh, I better say, oh Lord," in a prayerful way. And uh, please, Lord. Be merciful to our nation. Give some kind of revival, some kind of repentance. Or, or take us home. What, uh, what's the point in us still being here if this is, uh, if this is what's going to happen? Chapter 4 and verse 2. For Yodi and Seneki, how do you get two women to cooperate? How do, you, how do you get two men to cooperate? How do you get two sinners to cooperate? I don't care if they're women or men, whatever the case may be. When it says live in harmony, guess what? That's also phreneo. 
That's also the same verb we're looking at in all of these instances. It's for now. And so they need to think the same way, to think the same thoughts. And uh, if, uh, if, if they both think that doing that means surrender, well then neither one of them is going to surrender. Okay? If, if, if Yodia thinks that this means she has to adopt Syneke's point of view, or if Syneke thinks she has to compromise or surrender or lose, and she has to somehow change her thinking to agree with Yodia, they're both wrong. The fact is both these women need to stop what they're doing and have the, the, the thoughts that Christ has. They need to be molded into the image of Christ. And it's not about winning and losing and who's, who's compromising. It's not like uh, you know, a government shutdown and who's going to cave first and who's going to reopen the government and how's it going to be presented. You know, it's going to be presented as a surrender, as a defeat, as a, as a glorious uh, thing. <laughs> All right. The fact is, living in harmony means thinking the same. That we are privileged to have the thought process that Jesus Christ still has to this day. He exemplified it during His earthly walk, but He still has the same thoughts today that He had back then. He's uh, seated at the Father's right hand, still thinking the same that He was thinking back then. So we need to have this attitude. And this is the thinking we are uh, called to have. And then the two uses here in verse 10. So that's uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Yeah, this is number 9 and number 10. 10 out of 26 for now uses are right here in this book. So uh, you have revived your concern for me. You have breathed life into it. You have nursed it back to health, if you will. Or it has re-sprouted after a time of botanical dormancy. Um, you're, you're thinking for me. Indeed, you were thinking about me the whole time. You were concerned before. You never stopped thinking about me, but you lacked the opportunity. And this, I think, is a marvelous admission too. When he says, indeed, indeed, that's almost like, I didn't realize this at first. <laughs> uh, you know, I finally figured it out. Indeed. You weren't concerned before. You've been concerned this whole time. You think about what the subjectivity test is when um, if you think that you've been betrayed or you think that you've been abandoned or you think that somebody who should be supporting you isn't supporting you anymore. You think that nobody cares, right? Nobody knows, nobody cares. The trouble I've seen. You start thinking these things and then whether they're true or not they might as well be true because you're, you're convinced they are. And you start thinking, the Philippians don't care. Austin Bible Church doesn't care. They're not thinking. They're not concerned. They're not giving. They're not thinking. And so you start to get into that mindset that this is, this is true. They stopped caring about me. Well, and then you realize, oh, wait a minute. They never did stop. They never stopped caring. They just couldn't send the gifts along with all the prayers, and the prayers never stopped, okay? Even if the, uh, the cash flow was uh, dried up for a season. So that's the, uh, the process there. And that's, I think that's also useful to consider as well when we uh, have to deal with things that a lot of times perception is, uh, has to be dealt with even if it's not the reality. If, if somebody thinks it's the reality, then that perception can, uh, can make all the difference in the world with, uh, with different things. So 
pay attention to that. That's a concept that could even be featured in, oh, I don't know, maybe some premarital counseling of some sort. That sometimes you might think something is true and, uh, and while you operate on that assumption, man, tremendous damage can get done in the meantime. All right. We're going to come back on Sunday, Lord willing, and we're going to talk about reviving. We're going to talk about nursing. Anathalo uh, here. Thalazo is a term for breastfeeding. It's a term for nursing. And, and uh, this is really revive us again, like the hymn we sing, um, to nurse somebody back to health, to... Uh, you know, you get the little lost animal or the little, uh, you know, creature that was just born and the mother died. And so what are you going to do? How are you going to keep this baby alive? Because the, mom, the mom's gone, right? So that, now you've got to become a, a surrogate. You've got to find some way to nurse that, that newborn puppy or kitten or, um, or uh, possum. In our neighborhood, there were possums that were trying to f- nurse and feed and whatever. Yeah, true story. And, uh, you know, and you're looking at this thing and it really, you know, the things are, we have got a very active neighborhood group on Facebook and they, they discuss a lot of different things. But anyway, and somebody wanted to say, are you sure the mother's dead? Yeah. It was a possum after all. Maybe she's just, yeah. yeah. Anyway, you get some funny people. When we talk about this though, and it's, it's curious too because I think there's other applications as well. Paul tells Timothy to kindle afresh the gift that is within you. And there, you can actually neglect your spiritual gift. You can neglect your ministry. Uh, you can reach a point where it does have to be kindled afresh. And that's, that's more of a fire term than a, than a nursing term, but the concept is still the same thing. That something had diminished and you've got to stoke it back up again. You've got to, get, got to revive it. You've got to get it back up to where it had been before and then beyond. Uh, as far as that goes. So we'll deal with that. And then uh, deal with the, uh, the actual uh, opportunity principle. If you lack opportunity, whose fault is that? Okay. And if you're waiting for the opportunity, are you using the lack of opportunity as an excuse or is it a legitimate closed door and you're just waiting out the season? And, and if this door is closed, are you looking for the other doors that are also open? Okay, because that, there may be opportunities for service in other capacities. Just because this capacity is closed, that doesn't mean everything's off the table. Find what doors are open. If this opportunity is gone, what opportunity is open at the moment? Stay busy doing that. And uh, don't, be, uh, you know, don't, don't be grumbling about what God won't let you do. See? So we'll have some applications there. Father, I thank you for tonight and I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the book of Philippians and the, really the, the very practical doctrines that you're teaching us in this book, Father, especially here now in this closing paragraph related to the, the grace gifts. And Father, uh, you provided so powerfully for this congregation again and again and again, uh, including the month of December and our recent uh, completed year, Father, just so gracious. We thank you for these things. We thank you for these principles. I thank you for brothers and sisters that have a priority for learning the Word of God. And Father, this is what's going to sustain our nation in the coming years. We have to be hungry for truth. So work through us, Father. Might we be salt and light to our nation. Might we have a spiritual benefit to the state of Texas, to our city, to our nation. I do pray for our president. I pray for our Senate and House of Representatives. 
Pray for the government, Father, that uh, you have put over us. Might it be uh, functioning according to your will. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.